an accomplished physician, a scholar of public health, and a colleague of mine at the Hoover Institution, Scott Atlas, on what we've learned about the virus and why the time has come to end the lockdown. Welcome, everyone, to another special Plague Time edition of Uncommon Knowledge with Peter Robinson. Scott, welcome. Thanks for making the time. Yeah, happy speaking to be here. In, speaking in early March, Dr. Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, quote, the flu has a mortality rate of 0.1%. This, the COVID-19 virus, this has a mortality rate of 10 times that, close quote. Dr. Atlas, was Dr. Fauci correct? Well, no. I mean, at the time, there was very little known, to be fair. The evidence that was leaking out, really, from China and through the WHO actually said that the fatality rate was 3.4%. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, the fatality rate of that high, uh, it's reasonable to say, hey, we, that's justifiable to lock down temporarily, because that would have been really catastrophic. And the models that were made at that time projected literally catastrophic losses, millions of people dying in the U.S., millions of people dying in the U.K., for example. But of course, right. we've learned since then. So the answer is that, no. That will, okay, we will come to that. The costs of the lockdown. We've heard over and over and over again about the costs of the virus to us, but you have written lately about the costs of the lockdown. So let me ask you to take, through an take us through an article that you and your co-authors, John Burge, how's that Burge. pronounced? John Burge. Burge and Ralph Keeney published in The Hill in late May. From that article, quote, statistically, every 10 million to 24 million lost in U.S. incomes results in one additional death, close quote. How, how, how do you derive that? What does that mean? Yes, uh, well, let me just acknowledge the fourth co-author, who is Alexander Lipton. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Who is, uh, yes. Uh, so, uh, but in, in any event, what, what's happened is when you look at this, this kind of number, someone might say, well, where'd you get that? Well, the, these are data, these are numbers that are pretty established in the economics literature, in actuarial tables, and in a variety of other publications that are published. We didn't do, I just want to clarify, we did not do any sort of model or complex uh, hypothetical projection. We looked at established uh, sort of retrospective uh, data that has been done that is empirical, that correlates loss of economic productivity, unemployment, and similarly, the healthcare losses that we went through. All right. And is this work that's been done, I'm familiar with work, this is your field, not mine. So when I say I'm familiar, I have a layman sort of glancing familiarity with work that's been done on the so-called deaths of despair, particularly in Appalachia, uh, opioid deaths that's related to unemployment. People lose their jobs, the income de departs from a town or a region, and alcoholism goes up, opioid abuse goes up, death rates of all kinds go up. Is that, that's the work? Well, actually- Or does it go even that, farther back than that? Well, it's partly that, but really most of the stuff that we included in the true healthcare losses were listed in that piece, which are very, very limited list of things. Uh, but right. you're right, the unemployment itself uh, leads to worsening health and loss of lives and life years, which is exactly the way economists really have to uh, classify things. It's the life years that decrease life expectancy per se. It's right. not so just direct health care. Somebody who dies at the age of 20 has lost more according to the economist's calculations, than someone who dies at the age of 90. 
that's lost exactly more life years. Correct. Is that correct? All right. That's exactly right. And that's All a very right. important part of this to understand. Right. Again, I'm quoting from that article. In addition to lives lost because of lost income, lives also are lost due to delayed or foregone health care. Explain that, Scott. Sure. And this is one of the uh, really horrifying but underemphasized truths of the cost of the lockdown. As we said in the article, for instance, 650,000 Americans have cancer and undergo chemotherapy right now, currently. Half of them stop getting their chemotherapy. And that's just not, that, that's actually happened in the U.S. during this so-called lockdown. Because they're scared of going into the hospital that they might get the COVID or because the hospitals have shut down or some combination of all of this? Exactly. And this is a good question. There are two reasons. One is in the beginning, the hospitals, because of anticipated overcrowding, decided we're going to stop, quote unquote, non-essential procedures. And uh, what that meant was not what a layman would understand off at a glance, which would be, oh, that's cosmetic surgery, that's yes. uh, these little bo- that- Okay, you know, I mean, we're going to get a... a we can know, live a, without that. We can live without that. But the reality is non-essential procedures meant everything that was non-emergent. <clears throat> and so that means literally thousands of biopsies per week of potential cancers were not done. Uh, all scheduled hip replacements, knee replacements were not done. And uh, all kinds of other things, including, for instance, uh, we have something like, uh, I I forget the number of, uh, total number of cancer screenings, but two thirds to three fourths of cancer screenings were not done. May I make a little confession? I got an email from a medical facility that you and I both know and where I go and it said, you're due for a colonoscopy. I'm not especially happy for a, to undergo a colonoscopy at any point, but I thought to myself, you know what? Just at this moment, I think I'll skip it. That's the kind of thing you're talking about. That's happening oh, across the country. And the second part is what you had alluded to, which is the fear. Because it turned out that even emergency care was not getting done. 40% of people who had an acute stroke who were, you basically have zero to six hours from your symptoms to get into the hospital to get treated. Those 40% of them did not call the ambulance. That's out of fear. Uh, same thing with heart attacks. 40, 50% of people with heart attacks did not call the ambulance. And the, the most ironic of all was more than half of children did not go in for their vaccinations, which of course, the irony, a uh, sad irony, is that this is setting up a, yet another health catastrophe that we did actually quantify because there are CDC data about mm-hmm. lives lost when you don't have immunizations from some, some of these really uh, very serious illnesses. All right. So we have so-called deaths of despair, the horrible things that happen when people lose their jobs or income just generally drops. We also have all kinds of medical procedures that ought to happen that are not happening. And these are not small effects, they're large. I'm quoting again your article in The Hill, quote, the disease, that is COVID-19, has been responsible for 800,000 lost years of life, not individual deaths, but lost years of life so far. The national lockdown is responsible for at least 700,000 lost years of life every month, or about 1.5 million so far, 
already far surpassing the COVID-19 total, close quote. That is just, that's more than arresting. It's shocking. You are saying the lockdown has already cost twice as many years of life as the virus it was supposed to protect us against. Have I got that right? That is, well, you are just saying that's factually, as, as best social scientists can come to the numbers, those are the numbers. Those are the conservative numbers. Because uh, in that calculation, we only included the loss years of life from unemployment in terms of the economic side. And we lost the lives lost from the specific health list of about half a dozen healthcare misses that were uh, not getting done. And so we were very conservative, intentionally so. And I want to point out something else, which is that was written a month ago. It's true that there's been another 20,000 deaths from the virus. But in addition, we have another maybe 10, 10, between 10 and 15% worse unemployment. And more people have skipped things like vaccinations and things. This is an ongoing, the lockdown is not over. Uh, you know, as you know, and I many know. people know, that when governments say they're opening, well, it's not, in, where I live, it's nowhere near open. Right. And since you live about a mile and a half from where I live, we're in exactly the same boat. Exactly. So Scott, here we are smiling, but that's just to keep from crying. This is, this is, this is horrible. So let me ask you this. I, I have said, and I've asked guests who've been on in the last couple of months, public officials have been telling us again and again, back in the days, the days as if they were ancient history, a month ago when President Trump was still holding his daily press conferences, and there was Dr. Fauci and a couple of other public health officials on the platform with him. And the, when those public health officials stood to the lectern, they talked again and again about the costs of COVID and why we need to lock down to protect these lives. And I assumed at the time that they weren't doing the other costs. They weren't estimating the costs of the law. I mean, it just seems to me the way you make policy is by doing a cost-benefit analysis. There are benefits to locking down. We save these COVID lives. And there seemed to be no effort to assess the costs. And here comes Scott Atlas saying the costs, are, the costs outweigh the benefits. All right. That's a horrible finding. But what you're telling me is that you were using data and work that's been around for a long time. I assumed that they weren't able to model the costs of locking down as well as they were able to model the benefits, that nobody had done this work yet. And in fact, I thought, Scott, this is, your, your article was, the, now, I'm not a professional, there may be all kinds of material I missed, but as a layman who's been following it all fairly closely, your article, three months into the crisis, was the first attempt to measure the costs of the lockdown that I have seen anywhere. Why? Why weren't they measuring the costs from the get-go? Well, this is really the, the really one of the several egregious failures of the policy uh, implementation here. Because what, basically what, what we would sanely do is consider the impact of what we're doing as well as the impact of what we're trying to prevent. Instead, they did two things. They, the policymakers in general, they put in a lockdown. They didn't care at all. They did not calculate at all the costs of the, the harms of the lockdown, the consequences of the lockdown. They did a stop COVID-19 at all costs. And they used hypothetical projection models that were so egregiously wrong, far, far off, 
yet they keep citing those models. And so even the, now, even now, and so the extension of the lockdown is the problem. I think we can all understand why the initial lockdown was done. Right. As I mentioned, once the fatality rate projections actually are data instead of projections, when we see what's going on, when we know who to protect, which uh, we can talk about, yes, uh, you know, we understand the 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 really disastrous consequences of what the continuation of the initial lockdown is doing. All right, Scott, how to end the lockdown? And again, I'm going to ask you to take us through an article on which you're the sole author this time, also published in The Hill, in which you lay out a plan for ending the lockdown. You suggest three steps, as I count them, that represent in one way or another taking medical measures. And here, let me quote you. Let's finally focus on protection for the most vulnerable, and that means nursing home patients. Those with mild symptoms of the illness should strictly self-isolate for two weeks, two, and we should implement prioritized testing for three specific groups, nursing home workers, healthcare workers, and first responders, and patients in hospitals with respiratory symptoms or fever. Three. So Scott Atlas, Dr. Scott Atlas, MD, says there's no need for two-thirds or more of the population to continue to shelter at home. You focus on nursing homes. If you feel sniffles, you go home for two weeks. And there are specific groups of people who are on, so to speak, the front lines of dealing with this. And we need to test those people. We don't need to wait until there are 20 million tests available each day. We don't need to wait until there's a vaccine. We do one, two, three doable things. And we can start talking about reopening. Have I got you right? Yes, exactly right. And those are uh, really should have been done from the beginning, frankly, because we knew who the vulnerable group were. I've said this many times, but every competent medical student knew from day one that like every other upper respiratory viral type infection, the highly vulnerable people are elderly people with underlying conditions and other what are called immunocompromised people. So that, that is the common sense and logical way to deal with this. And, in, and I just want to mention, instead of doing that, and even to this day, everyone who is healthy and not at risk is confined or strictly limited in their activities, yet they, the state particularly, but state leadership, but also other countries outside the U.S. even, did not lock down appropriately the nursing homes. So even in a place like Sweden that has a relatively rational policy and did appropriate social distancing, if people, you know, guidelines are very important. It's instead of decrees and confinement, they didn't confine everyone to their home. But in Stockholm, 70% of the deaths are in nursing homes. So it's not like the US leadership monopolized the incompetence. The incompetence is really worldwide on protecting the obvious vulnerable population. Okay, true enough, but I want to come back to the US leadership. The federal, state, and local governments absorb something like 40% of GDP. They have been using for three months the direct coercive powers of the state to tell us what we may and may not do. And with all those resources and all those powers, Dr. Scott Atlas says, you know what? They botched it. Correct? Absolutely. And again, the botching was the extension of the initial lockdown. The initial lockdown... Okay, we didn't forgivable, know what was going understandable. On. 
I'm going to understand the initial lockdown, but the extension of the lockdown is completely and utterly incorrect. All and right. now, let, let me continue the article, your article in The Hill. I'm quoting Dr. Atlas. Open all K-12 schools. Open all the schools. Open businesses, including restaurants and offices. Parks and beaches should open and outdoor sports should resume. There is no scientific reason to insist that people remain indoors, close quote. Open all the schools? I mean, this is- Are really, you want to put our children at risk? This is really the most important thing to do for our society for, for several obvious reasons. Number one, of course, if you don't, if you don't open the schools, uh, you, you've locked down society because most people do not have a second home uh, you know, with a maid or just buying a few iPads. It doesn't work that way for most people. But that's right. really not the main reason. The main reason, of course, to open the schools is because the children need schooling. And this is why we should open the schools, because there is virtually zero risk of death and virtually zero risk of a serious illness in children. This is the fact. This is inarguable. This is proven not only every uh, country outside the United States, but by our own data in the CDC itself, of the first 100 plus thousand deaths analyzed, 99.98 deaths were not in children. And in fact, 99.9%, I'm talking about percent, 99.9% .9 of deaths mm -hmm. are in people over 24. Now, K through 12, of course, are young children, there's another big point here. All over the world, Switzerland, Iceland, Australia, the United Kingdom, Ireland, you know, Asian countries, there is a minimal, if any, risk of children transmitting the disease, even to their parents. It's not just that children are not at risk at all from this disease. They also do not even transmit the disease. It is literally irrational to not only close schools. So the teachers wouldn't be at risk either. The okay, fifth well, grade here, teacher, sixth grade teacher, kindergarten teacher, they won't be at risk either? Okay, there's not a significant risk, but I wanna qualify that, mm -hmm. okay? Let's look at who the teachers are in K through 12 schools in the United States. Half of them are 41 years old or younger, okay? 82% are under 55. The risk from COVID-19 for people under 60 is less than or equal to seasonal influenza. So if you're gonna shut down the schools because you're worried about the rare teacher who's in a high risk category, you must necessarily cut, close the schools from November through April because they're at the same risk in flu season. Now that's point number one. Point number two is besides the teachers are relatively young, if there are high-risk teachers, we don't want to put a high-risk teacher in a risky environment. No one wants to do that. Even if the children could transmit the disease, and it's not impossible, but it's less likely, even when they could, we know how to socially isolate. Don't you think that teachers by now understand what six-foot distancing is, understand they can wear a mask? And if they're still afraid, if they still find it impossible to do social distancing that they've been doing for the last three months, if they still think it's impossible, they can teach from a distance. They've been doing that now. Instead of shutting down schools, in, in my way of thinking from the data, if you're shutting down schools, you, you do not care about the children. 
because it's very critical to, beyond the fact that they're not at risk, to understand something very important, the harms of closing the schools. Right. And th this is really a big topic and no one's talking about it. We know from the data already, it's a fallacy to think that online education in K through 12 is even remotely, no pun intended, like the quality of education kids get. First of all, in learning itself, 50% of children in the Boston area are not even logging in when they're supposedly in session. There's already been an estimated 30% loss in reading skills for young children with this online model. And we know as parents, the most obvious learning you do, the most really, as it, at least as important as the book learning, if not more, is the social experience, of the learning, learning to work in groups, the physical activity. You can't learn. We don't send our kids to school just so that they can read a, a, a book that's a specific information. We can give that to them at home. We want their socializing. This is normal maturation that is simply not happening. The physical activity is not happening. And then there's something else that I have not written about so that you couldn't possibly quote me. And that is that in the uh, days, and I get thousands of emails per week from all over the world, from researchers, parents, regular people thanking me for what I'm writing. And one of my emails recently came from a, a, an emergency room doctor at Children's Hospital in Michigan, who told me that the serious child abuse emergency room visits are up 35% during the lockdown. Now, let me tell you what that means. This is very important. Somebody who brings in their child to the emergency room, that's not because they smacked them around and gave them a black eye. These are, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this with, with, with sadness, these emergency room visits are for children who the parents think they might have killed them. They're unresponsive. They have multiple broken bones. These are the most serious 35% increase in child abuse, and that's directly due to the lockdown, and I'll explain why. Because when you lose your job, the correlation of amount of child abuse found in a home is directly correlated for lower socioeconomic group, unemployment, alcohol abuse. This is markedly increasing during the lockdown when we know that almost half of people making $40,000 a year or less lost their jobs, by far more than people like you and I. And so when these people have children and the schools are closed and there's a tremendous amount of uh, stress in the household, we know that the emergency room visits are going way up. And that's only part A, part B, is that do you know where the number one place that child abuse is noticed by an outside person? The school. 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 You school. close the schools, you have no visibility on the overwhelming majority of child abuse. So this is a creating a, a really a catastrophic, sad, and simply unspoken harm to the children. You realize, by the way, I didn't mention in that, and in the article, this is in the article that. When children go to school, that's the number one place where people with children with, with need glasses are detected, children that need hearing aids. I mean, the, the schools the kids, are the kids, so, The school lunch program, for some kids, it's the, the best meal they get all day. Yes. Exactly. So, you know, when you shut schools, you're really, and there's no risk to the children. Again, there's zero risk to the children. You are directly harming children. I don't understand how people who claim to be so, so focused on children, teachers, teachers unions, I think it's, it's, it's really outrageous. This will go down as the most heinous misapplication of public policy in, in, in modern America. 
Scott, you businesses, including restaurants, reopen them. You say that as well. You also say, I didn't quote you, but you argue that we'll need to use some new measures for hygiene, social distancing, and so forth. Just elaborate on that for a sentence or two, would you please? Sure. How different does the working environment need to be to make it safe? I think that we, we already, okay, no one knows the real answer to that, but we know we are sensitized. We have learned a lot of things about hygiene, sensitivity to uh, any kind of distancing and, and this sort of social behavior. No one knew what these words meant even before. And now That's I think right. as a society, right. we've learned quite a bit. And restaurants in private enterprise, as you undoubtedly would, would realize, they want to make an environment that their customers yes. and their employees feel safe in. Otherwise, it's, it's, it. it's not going to function. So right. you, you don't read, and they are already responding. Businesses are putting in, certain businesses are putting in barriers, plastic barriers. Uh, other things are being done with hygiene in restaurants and stores. But I think it's important to also recognize two things. Number one, guidelines are important. And I feel like educating the public, this is the role of government here. I could see requiring restaurants to put a, a, a guideline in the door that says if you're over 65 and or if you are diabetic, there may be a risk for being in a small space with nearby other people. But that's very different from saying to a restaurant, a restaurant must have six foot spacing. A restaurant right. must have masks. And, and I, I think this is a very important topic. The science behind six foot spacing is embarrassingly weak. And a, a one underscore to that is that the WHO itself recommends three feet. Most, really? many countries in the world use three feet. Some countries use 1.5 meters. These are obviously arbitrary pseudoscience kind of concepts. And okay, one of the studies that was done to necessitate masks in certain distances is they put two hamsters in cages what, both of them, one of them had a mask on, one didn't, and they blew with a fan micro droplets at them from certain distances. This is not the same thing as an infectious agent causing an infection. Point number two, though, we know that 98, 99% of people that get the virus have no serious problem with the infection. Half are asymptomatic. Well, repeat that percentage. I thought it was at least half. Half are asymptomatic. Half are asymptomatic and 98 or 99% have no serious illness. From oh, so you might disease. feel as though you have a cold, sniffles. Well, or, or you have the flu or it's a bad flu and you stay home. Right. But that doesn't mean that you're, you're not going to go to the hospital, you're not right. going to die. And frankly, if you feel that it's risky to go into a restaurant, then don't go. If you're 75 and a diabetic with you know, heart disease and obese, and you're a high-risk person, and you don't feel safe going into a restaurant, then don't go. No one's mandating anyone goes. But to set up a law or a restriction that is based on very, very weak science at best, and to say, okay, you must operate that or you can't open your restaurant. Peter, 70 or 80% occupancy is meeting costs in Manhattan right, right, and in right. most places for restaurants. You can't have a functional business like that. And no one wants to even go in under those circumstances. The science is, is really not science. It's, it's a fear-based and sort of cherry picking of certain studies. It's very poor analysis. As I say many times, a lot of smart people are doing a lot of sloppy thinking. All right. Then that Let me ask you about what we should have learned, or perhaps to some extent what we should have done. 
to return, to return to the central point, which I have to say over again, just to get it in my mind, it's just so shocking. The lockdown has already cost about twice as many years of life as the virus it was supposed to protect us against. This could only have happened if our public health officials and elected leaders made terrible mistakes. Where did the, well, name the top two mistakes. What, 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 you've already said you can understand why Dr. Fauci thought what he thought and recommended what he recommended. You can understand the initial lockdown. They didn't have good data. The initial data coming out of China or the initial indications coming out of China looked very scary. But that was then, and here we are three months later. What, when should they have changed? What, what were the mistakes? The, the big mistake, frankly, was relying on and reacting to continually the hypothetical projection models that were grossly wrong. Uh, this is still being done. I'm interviewed about this all the time. Wow, the, the, there's a new projection. The projection models now that are being used, you have to realize this is a very common sense point, I think. Every four to five days, they, re, they readjust the projection. Well, I mean, if a model, and this has been going on for three months now, if a model is good, why would you have to readjust it every four to five days? It's because there's new data. Why don't we just look at the data? So instead of focusing on the actual data that we've been acquiring here, they keep relying on these sort of projection, hypothetical, worst case scenario models and those models, by the way, anticipate deaths based upon the rate, including the rates of nursing home and non-protection of the elderly. So the, the models themselves are grossly flawed. And we have that. This is sort of a, a societal problem here, I feel. And this is not a, sort of my area of expertise. I'm just this conjecture. But we're in a world of hyperbole. We're in a world where social media is an igniter of really outrageous statements and reactions and instantaneous things. And we're in a world where anyone who can do a, a Google search thinks they're an expert. So we hear a lot of people pontificating about medications, about side effects of medication. They don't have any medical perspective whatsoever. And the news is sensationalizing. One example was this idea that children get this rare uh, entity called Kawasaki syndrome, yes. or it's similar to that. This is extremely rare. And, you know, but this was the headline for, for over a week, really. And the reality is that doctors understand that there are rare exceptions that are very dangerous in virtually every disease. The rare exceptions do not change the overwhelming amount of data, yet that carried the day. So there's this sort of reactive fear uh, that has entered into the public policy making. Scott, let me read to you a quotation. This is George Gilder in the Wall Street Journal. This is taking you, I want to stipulate that what I, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions now that aren't strictly medical, and if they make you feel uncomfortable, say so. But I know I'm, you're, you study public health policy, so this is a question of the interplay between democracy and, and medical professionals. Exactly. All right, so here's George Gilder. The US economy has been cratered less by the coronavirus than by the response to it, driven by the undemocratic idea that science should rule. There are not and never will be scientific answers to all public problems. Politics is how we exercise our free will, and that rather than reflexively deferring to experts, we should defer as much as possible to the principles of freedom and common sense." Close quote. What do you make of that? 
Well, I think that's right on target. And that's sort of the difference between what I'm saying, which is have regulation guidelines, but that's different from sort of dictatorial confinement or conditions for selective businesses are essential and selective businesses are not. The whole thing is, is sort of off the rails in terms of what you thought was a free society. But I, I would modify something. And, mm-hmm. and that is that it, it's, this is the difference between what I do and, and sort of pure science because public policy, healthcare policy takes into account healthcare, but also public policy. And public yes. policy, as you know, has a lot to do with what he sort of called politics, which is what what is the way to guide society to implement the information. And what I've said and what I still say is that our leaders failed to have the capacity to sort of analyze in a logical, common sense way what the experts were saying. We should never and will never in, in any free society simply delegate to people who are computer modelers what we so, should do in a policy world. All right, let me ask you, President Trump and many governors ha- have been attacked again and again, very roundly, for failing to defer enough to the so-called experts. Excuse me, I shouldn't say so-called, they are experts, to the experts. But you're almost arguing that they deferred too much to the experts, that they, that they failed to push back and say, wait a moment, my job as an elected leader is to make trade-offs. And it's my job to preserve the freedoms of this nation and to engage in a certain amount of common sense. And above all, if I, not above all, but if I possibly can, to preserve to the extent possible the economy, the, the functioning of our schools and our businesses. That's my job. So you're the expert. You give me advice. I make decisions. Is that the, that, what do you make of all that? Well, I mean, I, th- I think this is exactly right. In other words, I, I like to say that empathy and caution are not enough from a public figure. We all know that this was a, a disaster. We all need the reassurance and, and the, the, uh, the caution. But on the other hand, the way to really reassure the public to me is to say in a very logical, common sense way, what are the facts? And given all the facts and given what we're going to do, this is what we feel is the best pathway to come out at the other end. And I think people are reassured by having by listening to people who can logically present the information and make a, a logical case because okay, not everyone's a scientist or an epidemiologist or an infectious disease person. No one out there in politics, hardly any have really had medical training. Some have. But the reality is that people understand logic. When you have the facts and then you have people give you the facts and then you use your common sense because, you know, and frankly, this has been missing on the other hand of this from the experts. These people have been sort of... uh, talking about their own fields, but they have not used deductive reasoning and common sense and logic to interpret those findings for political uh, leaders and for public policy implementation. So there's you been a disconnect. A high, you have a high opinion of the American people. Give them the facts and a little bit of guidance and their intelligence and common sense will see them through. And I, I, I think that that is 100% correct. And, and frankly, you can see there are very few countries that have been as uh, uh, totally like what I'm saying, but there are some. And I'll give you an example is Sweden, 
which of course has been inappropriately criticized, but, but I can go through that if you'd like. But the reality is they trusted their citizens. Right. And, and what they said was, these are the guidelines. We're not going to do a total lockdown. We believe you understand the seriousness of this. And people did social distancing and people did a variety of maneuvers. But on the other end of this, they're coming out in a much uh, less harmed fashion. They didn't close their schools. They didn't lock down their businesses. They're going to take a hit because people did social distance. But what we've done here is really, uh, it's going to take many, many years to recover from this. It, it's going to be a very difficult task. Scott, COVID-19 and recent events in the news. Take a look at two tweets. Let's contrast two recent tweets if we can. Tweet number one, Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York City on April 28th. My message to the Jewish community and all communities is this simple. The time for warnings has passed. I've instructed the NYPD to proceed immediately to summons or even arrest those who gather in large groups. Tweet number two, once again, Mayor de Blasio, this time on June 14, marching during today's East Harlem pray and protest. I felt confidence that change will come. And there he is, he's posted himself, pictures of himself in large groups. Okay, what are we to make of this? Well, you know, what we're to make is, this is what you see when you have irrational people in our leadership positions. I mean, because there is no logic, of course, to what you just showed, having that total disconnect. But even more so, even if you just took the first tweet, which was uh, about, uh, it's all about saving lives and stopping the infection, period, is what he said. Uh, the reality was it, it wasn't about that because there was no evidence that you had to close all religious services and selectively open up other groups and other businesses. That's just not the way the data was. Even the WHO uh, recommended various other ways to deal with small spaces and so, I mean, I just think this was, again, fear and ignorance driving public policy. The contradiction uh, is sort of uh, just such underscoring the lack of rational thought when he's out and other leaders were out. Meantime, they keep saying it's all about lives, but they didn't lock down the nursing homes. And we had thousands of people right. in New York killed, not just died in nursing homes, killed by an order that commanded that infected nursing home patients were still going to be put back into the nursing home. So these are people that have really indefensible cases. And, and one day I hope that there's some accountability with that. Another set of two items. These are not contrasts, these are similar. The contrast is that they're on other opposite sides of the country. Venice Beach, in Venice Beach, California, a picture of a bulldozer that's filling a skateboard park with sand on the beach to make sure that kids don't use it. And here's another picture. This one is in New York City. This is at the behest of Mayor de Blasio, city workers are welding shut the gates of a public park. Dr. Atlas, what do you make of Venice Beach and the park being shut in New York? Yeah, well, there's two, two just really inexplicable uh, thought processes uh, going on there. One is that somehow People seem to think that in leadership positions that it makes sense to be confined indoors rather than be out of doors. That, you don't have to be a doctor to understand that that is just completely ludicrous. And then when you look at the data, even the original data out of Japan, they showed that the transmission rates were far higher by order of magnitude higher 
inside, in confined spaces. Outdoors is far, far lower risk to get a to get a contagious disease. That's just this is just common sense. I, I don't even know how to explain how that is so ridiculous. But the second part is locking children's playgrounds. Again, we go back to the fact. These are people, these leaders consist that, quote, it's all about the science, but they're, they're doing things that are contrary to the science because there is virtually no risk to the people who would use those playgrounds. The children have almost no risk. In fact, I'll give you a quote from the JAMA Pediatrics uh, Journal. JAMA is the... Uh... Journal of the AMA Thank Pediatrics. You. It's a special pediatrics journal. Thank and you. their quote is, and this was a series of 48 pediatric hospitals in North America. And their quote is, the risk of a serious illness from seasonal influenza in children is, quote, far greater than the risk of serious illness from COVID-19 in children. So, I mean, this is a completely irrational response. To lock down the playgrounds is just, I mean, it defies any science whatsoever. And in fact, uh, it just shows a complete lack of capability for being in a leadership position. Mm. Last questions. Scott Atlas writing in The Hill on May 18th. The time of failed leadership must end or we are committing national suicide. You wrote that on May 18th. We're recording this on June 18th. The lockdown hasn't ended. Why not? Again, I, uh, I think it's a failure to communicate. And the failure to communicate is also in the leading voices of the policy. When we have people who are completely risk averse, like Dr. Fauci, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, when he gets out there and he says, well, we don't know everything about the virus. We don't know 100% that children can't get sick. These kinds of statements are just really not, thought, not thoughtful statements. They're not, they're not taken by someone who understands he's speaking to the public here. You have to have some perspective. So the fear has been so great. And the, basically, the people in charge are, are laymen. They're human beings. I empathize with the fear. But we have to expect more from the leadership than that. All right. Will COVID-19 come back in the fall? And if it does, how bad will it be? And if it's bad, will we lock down all over again? All good questions. Uh, No one knows if COVID-19 will come back in the fall. No one. And in fact, we know that previous SARS viruses didn't necessarily come back because this bit about viruses mutating, that's actually a good thing generally because when they mutate, they become less impactful. That's how they fizzle out. So we don't know if if COVID-19 will come back in the fall. If it did, we do know that we are far better prepared. We all understand social distancing. We're all used to what to do. But more importantly than that, even the government has done well at understanding how to mobilize resources. We know how to stockpile things. We know how to mobilize and have a better handle on how many ventilators we need. And in fact, we were never short of ventilators, by the way, despite the protestations of people like uh, Governor Cuomo. So we are far more mobilizing in our resources. We're experienced. We don't know if it'll come back. And by the way, we don't know if we will have a vaccine. We can think there's good positive indicators we'll have a vaccine, but vaccines are not magic wands even when we get them. We know seasonal influenza vaccine is 40 to 60% effective. That's not 100% effective. Right. So that's, that should not be a, pre, a prerequisite, a predicate for reopening. 
We know how to deal with this virus. We know uh, exactly really who's gonna be vulnerable to this. And we know that the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of people don't have a problem if they get infected. So to me, I don't care that cases are going up. In fact, that's not a problem at all. It's only important to protect the people who are gonna have a serious problem with this illness. All right, actually, let me, I said I was the last questions. Here's a, I'm just going to stick one in. You mentioned that we've actually done pretty well in certain regards. Here's Vice President Pence, Mike Pence, writing yesterday in the Wall Street Journal. Quote, the media has tried to scare the American people every step of the way. The truth is, our approach has been a success. We've slowed the spread. We've cared for the most vulnerable. We've saved lives and we've created a solid foundation for whatever we may face in the future. That's a cause for celebration, not fear-mongering, close quote. How much of that do you buy? Well, I, I agree that uh, we have learned quite a bit during this and we have mobilized resources and we did uh, do many things correctly. That said, we still had a tremendous problem with protecting the most vulnerable and that's all across the country, variety of states. Some states have 80% of their deaths are in nursing homes. Even the other day, by the way, Minnesota had 15 new deaths. 11, even the other day, were in nursing homes. 11 of the 15 deaths. I mean, you'd think in this an area where there's restricted entry already, we'd be able to handle that. But nonetheless, but I do, so I think that we've had problems. We were caught blindsided, by the way. I mean, the world was. China did not give the information. They denied it was a human-to-human -human interaction. They denied that it was a serious problem. And then these people uh, in the region where it was infection uh, center, really, Wuhan, uh, there was a, an allowance of flights internationally. So we were caught by surprise, but I think in the end, despite the deficiencies, I don't think we did very poorly. I think in some ways we did well, and it's hard to say that when you had 100, you know, 120,000 people die. But on the other hand, uh, there's, there's very little that could have been done in a realistic way to me uh, given that we we're blindsided better, we're going to do much better in the next pandemic, which frankly is inevitable. Inevitable. Not okay. from now this that, virus, but it's that, inevitable. That leads to the, this is the last question. There will be another pandemic. You just said that, you just used the word inevitable. Now consider, if you would, consider the rising generation of physicians and public health officials. Think about the kids who are in med school right now. And I repeat this heartbreaking, maybe infuriating, maybe it should, maybe it should even be enraging, but I repeat your finding that the lockdown has cost something like twice as many years of human life as the COVID virus itself has cost. What do you want to say to the kids who are in med school right now watching all of this happen about the central lessons that they should learn and apply when the inevitable next pandemic strikes and they may be in charge. Yes, I mean, the central lessons are to use critical thinking when you're looking at the evidence. That's point numbers one through nine. You really have to have a perspective when you're looking at something. You don't just read the bottom line of a study. We look 
when you're taught in a good medical school and in a training program as a doctor, you really, the difference between a great doctor and a good doctor is not the amount of information they know. It's to be able to use deductive reasoning and critical analysis of the information. So I think point numbers, you know, the first part is use critical thinking. The second part is, of course, when we're doing a, a health policy maneuver or, or a health policy in implementation, you must understand the impact of the policy itself. There's no such policy as stopping COVID-19 at all costs. That is never, was never the policy, even of the Trump team of Fauci and Burke in the beginning. That was never the stated policy, but it has devolved into that sort of thinking where we must stop all COVID-19 at all costs. And somehow the public, because of that policy, has become so fearful that now they buy into that policy. And so I think that's lesson number two, is know the impact of the policies themselves. At least be able to judge that before you start implementing really severe, in this case, draconian uh, public policy. Scott, here's the last question. Here in Northern California, when are the barber shops finally going to reopen? Because I'm going just crazy. I've been, I can't use any more glop on my hair. Oh, this is sort of an interesting question because I got a haircut today. And, and I'll tell you how. Where? The, yeah. And actually in my barber shop. And I'm, pro, I'm sort of happy to say it because I, I think the rules are outrageous. And this is what's evolving here. There is sort of a speakeasy culture evolving. I know this is happening in New York City because I have people who I know who live there. And it's sort of like the era of prohibition where people have had enough and logical, sane, common sense Americans have said, no, enough is enough. And so many stores are boarding up the front or putting curtains up. And now there is this, what I call a speakeasy culture emerging where life will go on for the people who understand that this is actually completely irrational and it's going to happen more and more unless the political leaders sort of get their act together. Okay, so after we close, which we're doing right now, I'll give you a phone call and you'll tell me the address of your barbershop and tell me the password, knock, knock, who's there, one of those. Dr. Scott Atlas of the Hoover Institution, thank you. Pleasure. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution, and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.